I want to remind you guys that this coming Tuesday, I need to have someone clarify the details, but Dixie, is Dixie in the room? Dixie Rivers, where is she? She left. Okay, someone else who knows this information about Tuesday the movie over at Grand Avenue. Uh, would that be Gabe? You know that? All right, so um, this coming Tuesday, there's going to be a, is it a documentary? Is that what it is? It's a documentary that's um, details and highlights the issue of sex trafficking in our country. And so um, one of our beliefs as Christians is that we believe that wherever the gospel goes, it should also bring about uh, justice and mercy. And so one of the things being highlighted, as you've seen on Facebook and whatnot, people posting pictures of the red X on their hands saying, end it, end slavery now. Um, and so our hope is that you guys would go out and support that documentary on Tuesday at Grand Avenue. Is that correct, Gabe? Grand Avenue Theater. And what time? 6.30. And is it multiple screens? Just one screen. Okay, one showing and that's it? Okay, buy a ticket online, and they go to what website? Just the, the Great Avenue Theater website or where? You're not sure. Google it. When in doubt, Google. So you can uh, look that up. Also, um, another announcement that we forgot to make. Uh, Susie Merrick, she is one of the mothers of, of one of our students here, and she is actually putting together on her Facebook page um, a chance for us to bring meals and gift cards to the Rue family, so they could. Their Graham is still in the hospital; been two and a half weeks now, um, and so it's just a really tough ordeal. So I'm gonna share that later on on my Facebook, and you guys can get your parents to sign up to bring meals to the rest of their family at home, but also bring uh, gift cards to the hospital, um, so they could have ways to eat. Because here's the deal: when you're eating out almost every meal, it gets really, really expensive. So we're gonna try to pitch in to help them with that, those kinds of things. So um, now, before I begin speaking. I've got to do one thing. Did you guys, could you guys worship with that staring you in the face? Did, was anyone distracted by this earlier? Why is this in the outback? There, hey, there are things that I throw away in the dumpster that make their way back into this building, and it really freaks me out. I'm not sure why that is, but actually, that's still freaky. i got to get them off the stage. There we go. All right. So let's open to Judges chapter 6. We're in the book of Judges still. And you ever have one of those uh, series, if, if there's ever a series that I thought would, like, end our youth group, it would be this one. And I was kind of nervous going in thinking, like, judges. Who's going to come and listen to judges and hear us talk about judges? But um, you guys seem to like this, so I guess we'll continue on in the series, especially with the stories of the last two weeks. I'm sure you guys are pretty entertained. Um, so uh, looking at Judges chapter 6, and I'm going to summarize for you. Uh, before I begin, though, I want to let you know that um, I'm really pulling a lot of this series from this awesome book by Tim Keller. Um, it's on judges. It's basically a devotional it's on the book of Judges. Never thought I'd ever see a, a devotional that's on the book of Judges. Judges is not a very uplifting book, and so this is a book on that. And it's why you see me quote him a lot from the stage. So um, I'm quoting a lot from this book today, so I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. I'm not, I'm not taking, stealing his ideas. I'm giving credit where it's due. So, um, but I am going to summarize uh, some hefty chunks of this passage today because there's a lot to cover. It's like 40 verses. I'm not going to read all, the, all 40. We're going to summarize a few of these. 
So here's a summary of verses 1 through 6, just to start off. So first of all, Israel commits idolatry again. That's a big surprise. And then God sends the Midianites to oppress them as punishment. If you notice the book of Judges, it's weird because God uses pagan people to punish his own people. Like his own people turn against him, so he goes, okay, well, I'll just use your enemies to punish you and hopefully bring you back to myself. And then, so the Midianites oppress them by stealing their crops. So it's different than previous oppressors. What the Midianites would do is they would commit kind of like terrorism, where Israelites would, would grow their crops and get everything ready for harvest. And right when they're about to harvest everything, they would come in, the Midianites would come in and steal everything and plunder their whole, all their crops. That's how they would do it with the Israelites. It was, it was like an economic terrorist act. And then after this, the people cry out, but instead of God delivering them, like in previous passages, God sends them a prophet who gives them a sermon. And as you know, I am all in favor of sermons. So uh, looking at verse 7, this is what this prophet says to the nation of Israel. It says, when the people of, of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So instead of getting what they're asking for, which is deliverance, the Israelites get a sermon. Now, why do they get a sermon instead of deliverance? Because I think what happens is, you ever notice, like, we don't just repent spontaneously. We don't ever just come to our senses on our own usually and just say, you know, I realize that I'm an idiot and I need God. We don't ever typically say it on our own. So we normally have to hear something from the outside. We normally have to have someone speak into our life or you open up God's word and you realize that what God's word says, and you get convicted by it. And that's typically when you and I know to turn and to repent and turn back towards Jesus. So this is what is happening. God knows that they need to hear a sermon before they're going to actually turn back to him. So he gives them a sermon from a prophet before they, so they can hopefully turn back to him. So here's what God does in this sermon. First, he reminds them uh, of what he's done. He recounts their history of coming out of Egypt. Then he reminds them what they have done. The very last phrase, he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, I want to focus on this part for a few minutes. Because God reminds them, he says, I want to remind you what you have done to violate our relationship. Now, I know in our culture, um, especially in the church world, People say all the time things like, you know, don't dwell on the past. Don't focus on the past because that's where you're going to get bogged down. You know, focus towards the future. And on the one hand, I see what they're saying. Like, we shouldn't, if you're a believer and you've been forgiven, like you've confessed sin to God, you've repented, turn from that. On the one hand, you're right. We should not dwell on the past. But it is important at times to reflect on the past, right? There's a difference there. I'm going to explain what this means. But I really believe that we miss this sometimes. I think some. I think at times we try to gloss over our sin, like just, okay, we believe in grace, it's, it's okay, God forgives us, and we just want to move on very quickly from it, 
And so if you take notes, write this next quote down. If we do not grasp the full weight of our sin, then we will not grasp the full weight of God's grace. Because I think we forget that we forget that God's grace is not some just flippant, casual thing. I mean, Jesus died on the cross to show us how much he loves us. That, that was his grace in action. This is a heavy, weighty thing. And if we don't realize how weighty our sin is, we're never going to see how weighty God's grace is to us. We're going to miss it. And so we, we can't gloss over sin or we gloss over the cross when we do that. We've got to consider the weight of what we have done to violate this relationship with God. We can't gloss over it. And so on the one hand, we should not dwell on the past, but it does not mean we should not reflect on the past. It doesn't mean we totally just forget about it and say, okay, I'm not going to even think about that because the Israelites, God's reminding them, look, I want to remind you what you have done. You have not obeyed my voice. And until someone comes to repentance, it is a necessary thing to look back on and think back on what I have done to violate my relationship with God. In fact, uh, if there is one thing that I could infuse into your minds and souls as a youth pastor, it would be the understanding of what true repentance looks like. That's it. If I could inject it, like put it in a syringe and literally inject it into you, I would. True repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what is worldly grief? When Paul uses that word, he's talking about a kind of grief that is worldly in the sense that they, the person just is ashamed. They're, they're, they don't like the consequences of their sin. They just don't like how they look in front of other people. That's a worldly grief. And whenever we respond that way to sin, that's not true repentance. That's a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow that produces only death. And so the nation of Israel, if you want to ask the question, why do they keep on doing the same things over and over and over again? It's because they don't have godly sorrow. They've got worldly sorrow, just regret, just we're afraid of the consequences. That, that, that's their focus. And so there's two things I want you to write down about worldly sorrow. The first one is this. Worldly sorrow does not produce real change. If you're someone who, th- who you're finding yourself stuck in the same patterns of sin over and over and over again, then I would say you're, you're probably stuck in worldly sorrow and not true repentance. True repentance leads to real change. Worldly sorrow would be things like this, being upset about the consequences rather than the, than the sin. If you want to know how you're truly repentant with your sin, ask yourself this question. Would I still have sorrow if there were no consequences? If no one's giving me, con- if, if mom and dad, teachers, principals are not giving me consequences, would I still have sorrow over what I've done? If the answer to that question is no, that's not true repentance. That's not true repentance. Because if, listen, if there's no sorrow for how the sin grieves our walk with God, 
and grieves him. If there's no sorrow for that, then I would say that's not true repentance. You know, this is the kind of person where as soon as the consequences go away, as soon as they get ungrounded, as soon as those, those consequences disappear, the behavior returns. Because it's like a cancer that's never been dealt with. It's not, there hasn't been true repentance. It's just worldly sorrow. The second point is real repentance focuses on the true result of sin, which is the loss of the Lord. And so when you sin, what worries you the most? Is it getting grounded or is it I violated a relationship with the Almighty God? Like He's holy and I'm not holy. What, what is it that concerns you the most? Is it the consequences on earth or do you look at the ultimate consequence, which is I have violated something that is very dear to me and it's my walk with Jesus? What is it that really concerns you the most whenever you fall, fall into sin? You know, worldly sorrow is about us. It's about how I've been ruined, how I've been hurt by the consequences. Repentance is all about God, how he's been grieved as a result of our sin. And so God sends the Israelites a prophet to move them from this worldly sorrow, hopefully to godly sorrow, which is repentance. And this is what God wants for us as well. But I want to focus on uh, a couple things. I think with repentance, there are two mistakes that we tend to make with repentance, and it's this. The first one is, as I said before, someone who dwells on the past, someone who has been forgiven, they've confessed their sin, they have brought that to the cross, they have brought that to Jesus, he has forgiven that, but that person struggles with dwelling on the past, lies from Satan, lies from your own flesh, saying that, you know, how can God accept you? How can you be good enough? Those kinds of lies from Satan to you. That's someone who's dwelling on the past in an unhealthy way. But there's the other kind of person, the kind of person I think I see a lot more of in the church, including myself, and it's the kind of person who never reflects on the past. As soon as they sin, they just are like, yeah, 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 I confess that. I took care of that, and I've moved on. And it's this very shallow kind of moving on. It's not, they're, they're not reflecting back on, okay, why, why do I feel drawn to these idols? They, they don't ever reflect and think deeply about why they struggle in the ways that they do. They just gloss over it, never reflect on it, never think about it. And they do it under the guise, they do it under the facade of, yeah, I don't want to dwell on the past. Well, you're right, it's unhealthy to dwell on the past, but it's very healthy if you've not really truly repented yet to reflect on the past. And so God is telling the Israelites, hey, look, look at the past. It's summed up in one sentence, you have not obeyed my voice. And until they come to grips with that, until you and I come to grips with the fact that we have violated a relationship with God, we will never fully understand his grace to us if we don't understand the weightiness of our sin. And so understanding the difference between these two ideas, reflecting on the past versus dwelling on the past, I think is the key to your spiritual growth. Understanding the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is the key, one of the keys to your 
spiritual growth. I'm going to read a really long quote from Tim Keller from his book. He says, We need to discern in ourselves the difference between the normal lapses on the road to increasing Christian maturity and getting stuck. There is a difference between getting stuck in the same deep, rooted patterns of sin over and over again versus the normal lapses of the Christian life. There's a difference there. I'll give you an example. So take pornography. We like to use that expression a lot, that, 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 that uh, example quite a bit because I think it's very relevant. So take pornography. So a guy comes to me or a girl comes to me and says, hey, I'm struggling um, with this, and you know, it's a, you know, every few months I stumble into this, and I want to confess it, I want to repent, I want to take steps that are necessary to eliminate this from my life. That's a person dealing with normal lapses of sin. Now, I'm not saying... You shouldn't take those things seriously. I'm not saying like, oh, okay, well, it's not that big a deal. I'm saying it's a big deal because those normal lapses can quickly become the rut that you're stuck in if you're not careful. So that's one person. But the other kind of person is a person who says, yeah, I do this every day or every week. It's a habitual pattern. This is a rut that I am stuck in. And they are making no effort to repent, to turn from it, They're just coming and confessing it, not true repentance. This is a pattern that they are stuck in. There is a difference there in the Christian life. The next thing he says is this. If you are continually falling into the same spiritual pit over and over again, your falls and your falls are not decreasing in numbers or intensity, then you may be responding with worldly sorrow, not repentance. Next slide. Many people who are making progress feel like they are not and many people who are not making progress are in denial about it. So there are some people that truly are, like having, they have spiritual growth, they're making progress spiritually, but they feel like they're not because they have these normal kind of lapses into sin. They feel like, I, I shouldn't be sinning at all if I'm a Christian. It's like, well, that's not really biblical to think that way. But they have normal lapses in sin, but they really think to themselves they're not really growing at all, when in reality, they're the ones that probably are growing the most because they're dealing with it openly, honestly, and they have true repentance. But the person who thinks that, yeah, I'm okay, it's no big deal, I mean, everyone does it, that's the person I'm most concerned about. The person who thinks they're growing, but they're really in denial about their struggle with sin. This is the most, listen, this is the most important thing I can instill into you, I think, as a youth pastor, is how you deal with your sin. I know at your age, you're in a very black and white stage of life. There's right, there's wrong, there's justice, there's injustice. And I think the struggle that you're going to have is just beating yourself up because you sinned. Listen, I'm going to say something to you crazy. The most important thing is not whether or not you sinned. It is how you handle your sin, how you respond to your sin. Now, I think it's a big deal that we sin. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a big deal. But I think the way you respond to your sin is the most important thing. You get that? Repentance, how you respond to it is the most important thing in your life. Now, we're going to look at... Uh, Verse 11, 
And this is the, the call of a man named Gideon. So Gideon was not the man who preached that sermon to Israel. This comes later on. So look at the verse 11. and I'll read uh, through verse 16. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah Winfrey. I don't know how to say that word. Which belonged to Joash the Abit, whatever. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. To clear up one thing, if you notice in this passage, this this person that appears to Gideon, it calls him an angel of the Lord, but also calls him the Lord. Did you recognize that? It says an angel appears to him, then it says the Lord turns to him. You know what, this is, this is really cool. There are many people that think this is Jesus appearing to him. And so other parts of Scripture, when the angel's not named, it's the angel of the Lord. Many think that when it says that in Scripture, that it's actually Jesus Christ showing up before he was incarnated in the flesh, but it's actually Jesus showing up and talking to Gideon. And Gideon at first thinks it's just a guy at first until he realized later on it's actually a spiritual or a, an actual godly being. So um, it's possibly, I can't be sure, but it's possibly Jesus talking to him here. Now look at verse 13. Look back at verse 13. Where Gideon's response, he says, Please, sir, if the Lord's with us, why then has all this happened to us? That is a question that many of us ask, right? Whenever we're suffering, we ask the question, God, okay, if you're, if you're here, if you're with us, if you're present with us, then why is all this happening to us? And if that's where you stand today, I want to remind you that the presence of suffering in your life does not mean that God is not present in your life. The presence of suffering does not mean that God's not present. We even see here, God is right there with Gideon. He's right there with his people. In fact, I would even say that sometimes whenever we're in rebellion against God and we're suffering as a result of the rebellion, the way the Israelites are, that that might be when God is most present with us because he's trying to get our attention. C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone to a lost and dying world. That that's how we, like, think of it. Like, one of the times that you most pay attention to God, it's when you're suffering, right? So pain is like God's megaphone, God's attempt to get our attention and turn us back to himself. And so God tells Gideon that he's going to be the one to set Israel free. He's going to be this man. In verse 15, Gideon's look at his response. He says, I'm the weakest guy in the weakest clan. How can I save Israel? And so once again, we see God uses 
unexpected people to do unexpected things. God uses weak people to show off his own strength. God does this over and over and over again. I think it's even funnier whenever we see how this uh, first man, how this man uh, first addresses Gideon. He first calls, what does he say in verse uh, 12? He goes, he shows up and he goes, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It almost sounds kind of sarcastic, right? Because if you read the rest of the chapters, like wait, Gideon is like the weakest guy in the weakest clan, and the angel's saying, O mighty man of valor. Like it makes no sense. It almost sounds kind of sarcastic, right? Where you can almost hear Gideon laugh, like, what, me? Are you talking to me when you say that? And here's what I want you to understand from that. Is that Gideon was about to become that. He wasn't there yet. He was about to become that because of what God was going to do in his life. And that's just what God does with us, right? He calls you to be something you aren't yet. He calls you to be something and someone that you're not quite yet. That's what God calls us to be as Christians. I want to summarize for you uh, verses 25, 26. So the next thing God, this angel, tells Gideon to do, he tells him to tear down an altar that was built by Gideon's own father. So so the man that God's going to use to turn Israel back to himself or defeat the Midianites is his own father, Joash, has built and constructed an altar to a pagan god. And look at verse uh, 27. So after Gideon's told to do this, verse 27, it says, So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So remember, the Israelites didn't just fully just reject God and turn towards idols. They tried to worship both. They tried to mix in idolatry with their worship of God. And so Gideon's father is no different. He has an altar to a pagan God, but also tries to worship the God of the Israelites as well. This would be like someone, a dad, bringing their family to church every Sunday, buying their kid a Bible for their birthday, while when the family goes to bed, they're downloading porn. Or the mom who is praying before meals with her children, and then while when her kids go to bed at night, she's on Facebook connecting with an old boyfriend when she's married. This is what I'm talking about. You see, it's not too far from us. We still do the exact same thing in our world where we worship, formally, we worship the God of the Bible, but what does our world, what does our life revolve around? What does your life really truly revolve around? The Israelites, their lives revolved around idolatry, but they still had this like formality in their worship to God. They still did the church thing, and yet their worship, their true worship was to worship idols. And so, They didn't just outright reject God. They mixed in idolatry with their worship of God. Look at uh, verse 28. It says, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? Who has torn down our altar to our God? 
And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the, man, then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. So Gideon has torn down this pagan altar, his own father's altar. And the men of the town get so angry, they say, Bring your son to us so we can, we can kill him. People get really angry when you mess with their idols. They don't like that. They get angry. And so these guys are going to kill Gideon for taking down this altar. And on the one hand, we think to ourselves, well, that, that seems a little bit overreactive, doesn't it? Like, that would never happen in today's culture, would it? I read a story uh, a couple weeks ago about this kid named uh, Alexander Torres, who's an 18-year-old in Massachusetts. And he really wanted an iPhone bad for Christmas. And his dad did not get it for him. And so he tried to stab his father on Christmas morning because he didn't get his iPhone. They made the news, right? People get angry when you mess with their idols, right? People get furious. They try to kill people when we take away their idols or don't give them what they want. What is the one what is the one thing that if or several things for many of us that if you don't get that or if you don't if you don't have that you're angry, right? If you want to know where your idols lie, follow the trail of your anger. Follow our anger. Wherever wherever you wherever you get angry about, like most angry about when it's taken from you or you don't get that thing, then that's where our idols typically lie. One writer says this we say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. What controls you? What fuels your passion? What does your life revolve around? Not just what, what do you worship formally, but like what does your life actually revolve around? What are you passionate about? Tim Keller says this. He's referring to Israel. He says, before they can throw off the enemies around them, the Midianites, they have to throw off the enemies among them, the idols. This is always the main way we get renewal in our lives. God will not help us out of our obvious visible problems, money problems, relationship problems, until we see the idols that we are worshiping right beside the Lord. They have to be removed first. I think so often you and I, we identify the wrong enemy. We think the enemy is always these external, outward circumstances, when in reality, the enemy is right here in our heart, and it's idolatry. I was convicted of this this past uh, weekend. Um, we went to the Student Life Conference in Dallas, and about 40 of us went total, and I'm all ready to go, and I'm like, just feeling like so charged up for this conference. We get on the bus at about 4.30 and head up to Dallas, and we get to Waco, and the bus breaks down. And we're there for three hours. And this conference starts at 7.30, and it's, we're now leaving Waco at 8 o'clock. And we're going to miss the first night. And the first night was my favorite speaker for the entire weekend. And I'm just kind of seething on the inside. Like, I can't believe this happened. This just, and I, I'll be honest, I, I have to apologize to you students. I felt like that one thing kind of ruined my whole weekend. And I felt like I was just in a bad mood the entire time. Did you notice? You're like, yeah, we noticed. And what is that? That's my own problem. I, I want to look at it and say, well, 
if this hadn't happened or that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been that way. It was like, well, okay, you're right, but what brought the idol to the surface? It was the external circumstance, right? That's what exposed the idol, which is I want to be on time. This is my time with my students. Like, I want to hear the speaker. That's what it was about. And it's a form of idolatry that I want my way. I want my way. And so God convicts us of those kinds of things. And I think he uses external circumstances to expose those kinds of things in our lives. I want to summarize for you just real quick. Um, uh, verse 33, 35. Gideon is about to lead Israel now against the Midianites. And he is probably scared because, as we saw before, he is the weakest of the weakest, right? And so he's about to lead them against the Midianites and the Amalekites. But before the battle scene, there's this really famous scene in uh, verse 36. Look down at verse 36. This is the famous Gideon putting out the fleece, that scene we, we, we know about of Gideon's story. And uh, verse 36, it says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So Gideon says, he asked God, he goes, God, if you're really going to do this, if you're really going to save Israel by my hand, because I'm questioning, I'm doubting, because I'm the weakest of the weakest, then I'm going to lay this piece of wool on the threshing floor, and if you're really going to do this, when I wake up in the morning, I want there to be dew only on the fleece, but the ground be totally dry around it. And God does it. It says, and it was so. Then when he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then verse 39, then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, this time, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So this is Gideon, the weakest of the weakest. He's terrified. He wants some reassurance. He wants something he can hang on to that lets him know that God's real, lets him know that God is a person or a God of his word. And I think some people try to copy this. Like, it's actually been said of, of people, like, that um, I'm going to put out the fleece and see what God, if I should take this job or take that job. So we'll kind of set these things up where we think we're going to test God, and God's going to come through for us and show us if we should take this job or take that job. I don't recommend that you do things this way in your life, because you will probably get off track pretty far if you do this kind of thing. Because I don't think Gideon is, is even doing, he's not testing God's will because God already told him what his will is. He knows what's supposed to happen. He's asking a different question in this story. And here's the question he's asking. He knows God's will. He just wants some reassurance. And look what God does. Twice, God meets him where he's at. Look at the grace of God in here in this, in this story. God meets him where he's at, and God shows him and gives him reassurance. And I have to wonder how many of you are sitting here this morning and you're in need of some reassurance this morning. You're in need of, of some reassurance, something you can hang on to to know 
who this God is that we serve and the God that we say that we worship. And the question you might be asking yourself is, well, Gideon got this fleece. Like, what do I get? Like, what, what reassurance do I get? How do I know the nature of God? How do I know this is a God I can trust, a God I can love, a God I can have a relationship with? And so what's the thing that God's giving us for us to hang on to? And I would say to you this way, that God's given you this. He's given you his son on the cross. He has given you someone to hang on to. He has given us some assurance. And you might say to yourself, well, Dave, that was a long time ago. That's over 2,000 years ago. I need something in the here and the now. I need something more than that. And I don't think you have to look any further than the cross to know who this God is, the nature of who he is, the fact that he loves you, the fact that he wants a relationship with you. You don't have to look any further than the cross. You don't have to go back any further in history than that or since then to know that this is the God that you and I serve and worship. And so if you're asking, if you're asking this morning, God, where's my fleece? Where's my sign? God gave Gideon a little fleece soaked with water. He gives us his own son hung on a cross, soaked with blood. Let's pray. Yeah, we just thank you for um, giving us salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you for the power of the cross. I pray, God, that these students, that all of us would grasp the meaning of what it means to repent and turn towards you and to cry out to you for salvation, Father, for those that may not have a relationship with you yet, God. We pray that for our students this morning. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You guys have some discussion questions to go over, so grab that sheet there and go ahead and have, have your discussion.